This is The Secret Library, a podcast about writing and publishing books. I'm Caroline Donahue, a life coach who works with writers, and I'm here to tell you this is your year. It's time to stop waiting and start writing. Welcome to episode 70. My guest today is Patricia Park, who's the author of the debut novel Ray Jane from Viking and Penguin Random House. It was named Editor's Choice by the New York Times Book Review, one of the best books of 2015 by the American Library Association. She was born and raised in Queens, New York, and graduated from the Bronx High School of Science. She received her BA in English Literature from Swarthmore and her MFA from fiction, in Fiction from Boston University. She's the recipient of fellowships from Fulbright, the Center for Fiction, CUNY Writers Conference, and the American Association of University Women. Her essays have been published in the New York Times, Guardian, Salon, and others. She's an assistant professor in the MFA program at American University and lives in Brooklyn. I loved talking to Patricia. Patricia is a girl after my own heart. Anyone who goes and gets a Fulbright to go live in Korea in order to research a section of her novel has got it going on. Um, Patricia is so inspiring, so articulate, and so dedicated to the process of writing good fiction. And um, anyone who wanted to reinterpret uh, Jane Eyre, I don't know, it was it was kind of love at first sight for me and Patricia. So I can't say enough about uh, this episode. And I've been really, really thrilled um, having it waiting in the wings. And I think it's a great way to close out this month. Um, of episodes. So enjoy, and we'll be moving on to October in our next episode. Here we go with Patricia. Hey, Patricia, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Caroline. Thanks so much for having me. So I'm really excited to talk about your book, Ray Jane, because um, I am a huge, as many people are, Jane Eyre fan. And oh, great. You're a fellow airhead then. I'm an oh. airhead. <laughs> I, am, I didn't know that was the term, but I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I've read it a number of times. Of course, I've watched all of the BBC versions. Um, and I think I, I'm interested in both how you came up with wanting to do kind of an homage, because I, I think in reading your book, you really made it your own story. Um, I think there are books I've seen, I'm thinking of there was one, a retelling um like Curtis Sittenfeld did Pride and Prejudice recently. And, you know, there's a bunch where they kind of stick closer to the story. And you have kind of clever little references like the Lowood Corporation, which I loved. (laughs) Thank you for picking up on that. Oh, my God. Yeah, I was like, oh, is she going to go? Is she not going to go? We all know that's a bad place. But but also like making the story, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but but changing things so that it is, I, I think it started with Jane Eyre, but kind of became its own thing. Well, thank you for saying that. Um, you know, I, I think that's part of the challenge of taking on a canonical text, right? Um, how much do you hew closely to it? How much do you diverge? Um, I'll tell you a, a little story that um, kind of helped inspire the decision to take on Jane Eyre. When I when I was a child and I used to misbehave, my mother, who is um, a Korean immigrant, she used to say to me in her broken English, you act like orphan." And I never knew what that meant. How do you appropriate the qualities of an orphan? You either are one or you aren't. Uh, But what I realized was that for my mother and and her generation of post-war Koreans, to act, in quotes, like an orphan meant you behaved in a shameful way that that embarrassed your family. 
And I first read Jane Eyre when I was 12, and I was continually struck by these epithets that, that were thrown Jane's way. She was wicked, she was mischievous, she was friendless. And these qualities seemed somehow to be the embodiment of her orphanhood, orphandom. Um, and, and I've noticed this resonating a lot within uh, Victorian texts. So I guess my mind kind of drew that link between the Korean post-war orphan and uh, the British Victorian one. And that was in part how Rejane, my novel, was, was born. Um, and, and I guess just from a creative writing, kind of a, a craft perspective, it is very daunting to kind of sit down and write 300 some odd pages uh, there's no quite, uh, there's no blueprint for it. Um, you know, maybe if I were writing a, a genre thriller, you'd have to hit the beats, or, or maybe if I were writing a screenplay. But um, it's kind of hard to know. Um, when I, f- you know, first started writing um, a manuscript with a loose version of Jane, I was, I found myself writing the same scenes over and over. They were like bad episodes of Friends. Yeah, Jane at the bar with her friends, Jane at the cafe, Jane again at the bar. (laughs) Haha, funny thing happens. But they were generating no forward movement. And as an exercise to myself, I thought, you know, why not take a classic work um, in a a classic kind of three act structure and use that to kind of hang my scenes to them and and have that that build and that that momentum while being in dialogue with classic Victorian work. And so that's kind of how it started. As for um, the decisions to depart from, I think just as as modern day readers, we demand more from our contemporary heroines. In the Victorian era, it was fine to have heroines that were even independent for their time, but still kind of passive, kind of waiting by the postman for the, you know, for the proposal letter to come or or, um, for the man to to propose. And and there, there was a lot more sitting back, waiting reacting versus taking action so invariably over the 10 years that it took to write rejane um there were changes and and uh invariably departures from the source text absolutely so 10 years (laughs) yeah i can't i can't (laughs) let that one go we got to talk about the 10 years because i and and not in a like shameful way in a in a celebration way because i keep talking to people simultaneously like writers that I know who want to get their book done faster and then I get on the show and I talk to people who are talking about like five to ten years and and then they've got a book that that they are pleased with and that works and so I think (laughs) I I think we need to acknowledge that that maybe there isn't a way to get a book you're as satisfied with done in a year yeah, um, I guess the more that you get into it, the more the more that you think you know, the less you actually know, or, or something like that. I, I also, when I went off to get my MFA, I'm like, huh, no, I'll do this in like one year, I'll be out, and then I'll start shopping the manuscript. And as you get into it, you realize, oh my gosh, there's so much more I don't know. You know, I'm not sure how how this how to structure a scene. So so I'm building a climax with within the dialogue and then having the narrative action kind of support it. Oh shoot. Now I need to go to all these other books, read how other, other more masterful writers do it and then see how that influences me. Oh shoot. You know, I don't, I don't know how to get convey this character development. This, this person just seems so 2d. Um, they seem like a caricature. How do I make them well-rounded? And then, you know, going to various texts, even watching movies and TV, um, uh, interviewing people, jotting down notes that uh, 
uh, of eavesdrop conversations. So, so all of that kind of gets stuck in the the morass of of the novel writing process. Um, and I, I guess I, to echo just a, a comment earlier. Um, there is no blueprint for writing a novel. I no. used to wish. I'm like, where? Where's the Home Depot how-to manual on how to write a novel? And uh, you only learn what should go in there by writing all the things that should not and cutting them away. So my retention rate of what I write is, you know, I, for every 10 sentences I write, I cut nine of them. <laughs> I guess 10% retention rate. That sounds pretty good, actually. Oh, I yeah, yeah. I think that's high. I mean, it's amazing. Like, there's no other kind of profession or process where, you know, it's it's like you think, I mean, the only comparison I can think of is baseball, like that people who have a 30% retention rate are like the top of their field, you know, in terms of a batting average. And I am like the least baseball fan. I can't believe I pulled that out. But I do. <laughs> I, like, wow. I know. I know. But you think about like, you know, he's got a 0.3, whatever batting average. That's like the only detail I can retain about sports. But it did strike me like, oh, yeah, so you, you shouldn't feel so bad about rewriting nine-tenths of your book. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I think because I didn't know what other choice I had. Um, and I think as writers, if we wanted, if we were striving, oh, this is going to sound so precious, but if we're striving for mediocrity, we wouldn't bother because there's such little reward. And to throw in an econ term, I guess there's so little ROI, return on investment, right? You can write for one year, you could write for seven years and have nothing to show for it. But, you know, uh, some discarded paragraphs, years worth of discarded paragraphs, um, some some days, some years you even feel like you're making negative progress. And then one day out the gate, you know, I mean, one day after all that, the book gets published. So I, I think the, the way that we measure success in quotes in writing is, is a very different kind of barometer from from sports, from baseball, or maybe any other kind of more quantitative profession. Yeah. And I'm, if we can go back to the beginning of this impulse, I have kind of a funny story, which is um, I saw in your bio that you went to the Bronx High School of Science. (laughs) And and, and that is, I mean, that's amazing to me because that is not where I would kind of think like all great novelists, like Bronx High School of Science, like I would think (laughs) you'd be like, you know, a chemist or like inventing new processes. But I have a personal family story, history of the Bronx High School of Science, which is (laughs) my father is from upstate New York, uh, originally from Clinton, and he went to this little tiny high school, and then he ended up getting a scholarship to Cornell. And when he got there, the Bronx High School of Science kids used to tell me this as like my bedtime stories were terrifying to him in their brilliance. And um, absolutely staggered him. And he's like, I don't know if I'm even going to make it here. I can't compete with these people. So I was like, Oh, my God, I'm talking to someone from the Bronx High School of Science. Um, But I am very curious about how you get from a very kind of high powered academic situation like that into literature, because that seems like an amazing transformation. Oh my gosh, it's like many years of cognitive dissonance, and I'm still processing. <laughs> I think I'm still recovering. So funny that you mentioned Bronx Science and Cornell, because I wonder if your father studied with Carl Sagan, who was up there. Um, uh, I just watched, I was watching the new Cosmos with um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, mm. the astrophysicist, who's also a Bronx Science graduate. And he, um, he said that when he was a 17-year-old at science, he went up to Cornell for a day to spend time with his idol, Carl Sagan. And 
so as you were talking, I just saw this wonderful little picture of all these dorky Bronx scientists who, you know, don't know the ways of the world, don't know how to dress, don't know how to socialize, and uh, dorking it out at Cornell. But <laughs> to answer your question, um, science and math do not come naturally to me. Um, I guess, despite all the stereotypes of, of Bronx scientists and certainly of being an Asian American. <laughs> um, and I learned very quickly um, before I got to science, I thought, hey, you know, why couldn't I be a, a poet slash physicist? And then um, I was severely outclassed from day one um, when you're when you're in class, when you're in honors bio with all of the future scientists of America. What Bronx Science did teach me, though, is that I had a two hour commute each way um, from Queens to the Bronx. Um, you'd have to cut through Manhattan and take three or four trains and a bus. Uh, and so four hours a day, I'm on the trains, on the wow. buses. Yeah. So, so you just see such a wide swath of New York. Um, I saw all kinds of people at all times of the day, um, and it informed my writing. So instead of doing, you know, my chemistry problem sets on the way to school, I would start to jot, um, jot lines of poetry. I would, I would do little character sketches of the people that I would see around me, of the conversations that I overheard. So um, funny enough, I'm probably the only science site that, uh, you know, was being fertilized for writing <laughs> rather than uh, than astrophysics. Well, I think, you know, if you're a writer, like you're not going to get away from it. Like it's not going to get it's not going to escape you. Or I, I think that the kinds of observations you're going to make, you're not going to be able to avoid them. Does it? Yeah, does it feel that way? I, I think so. I, I think there is something inherent in the in the desire to um, poke and prod at something, um, to take things beyond their face value, um, to see what the inner life of of a person or a situation is. Uh, and but I, I think that's not to. But you can't. You cannot get there all by sheer talent or. or um, I think you kind of have to learn the tools of the trade too and put in your Gladwellian 10,000 hours as well. Absolutely. So how long did it yeah. take you to get from Bronx High School of Science to working on Ray Jane? Oh gosh. Um, in some ways, those early poems that I was writing in high school and those those little short stories all informed Ray Jane. Um, it was my my portraits of New York. So in Ray Jane, there are a lot of scenes of Jane on the subway doing these crazy commutes. For her, she's trying to get from Queens to the Bronx, which, um, as any map will show you, uh, the two boroughs abut each other. They're adjacent. But the irony of New York is that all trains go or lead to Manhattan. So you have to make this inefficient um, right angle cutting through Manhattan on the public on public transportation to get from uh, Queens to some parts of the, of Brooklyn. So, um, a lot of those scenes were, were inspired by my time spending four hours each day on the train. Um, but from there, I, I mean, in college I majored in English, um, and I was, I was always writing poems and stories and, um, oh gosh, uh, I, I think those were all kind of the early, yeah, the early little scribblings just forming an idea, but I don't think it really kicked off until, um, I decided to leave uh, the workplace and and go to grad school and and uh, really devote time to what I thought was a manuscript that was had some legs to it. So how is it? I mean, it, this is such it's so exciting to hear about how this like all roads lead to Jane. Um, <laughs> and how does it feel now that it's finished? I mean, there's almost 
I can imagine a bit of letdown, like it's out, it's, it's out in the world. So I'm, I'm wondering how that feels to let it go at this point. Oh, I mean, there's something really heartening about seeing it kind of take on a new life in, um, in the readers of Rejane, um, those, uh, you know, and the feedback that I, that I get in connecting with readers. So in some ways I, I don't feel that it, that she's gone or dead or not dead. God, that's, that's such a morbid term, but um, in some ways too, it's relief because I've taken the, I took this manuscript as far as I could, could take it. Um, I'm sure if I had another 10 years, maybe I would make it perfect in quotes, but um, frankly, yeah, you, you get, um, you get attached, but also it's good to have a break. I'm working on my second and third novels now, and it is still oh, part wow, of the same it world. Was. Yeah, well, you know, it's like one is the mistress and the other is like the wife. I, this is so terrible to use these analogies, but no, yeah, I, I love it. One, I go to the other. Amazing. Um, but um, they're all building off of the same world of, um, of queens and um you know, Jane's uncle does a cameo in the second one. Uh, a sort of minor character from the second, from the first, is the major character of the the second, and and you know, interweaving that way. So in some ways, I feel like, all right, I've taken Jane's story as far as I can take it for now, and let's see, let's follow these other characters. Um, maybe it's like watching, I don't know, Gosford Park or something like that where one character storyline kind of ends and then the camera pans to another character and we see what what happens in their life. Oh my god, I love Gosford Park. <laughs> it's I mean, what an ensemble, right? And and then weaving in that delicious murder mystery too. <laughs> Amazing. So good. Yeah. Plus there's Maggie Smith. You can't go wrong with Maggie Smith. She has sassitude, that woman. Yeah. <laughs> she is a genius. I keep hope. Did you watch uh, Downton Abbey? Um, only the first season, so I'm I'm not versed in my Downton Abbeyness. I keep hoping that there will be a spinoff from several characters from that come in maybe halfway through that series, and that we could spin off because I think that's in some ways the most satisfying sequel is a sequel that's not really a sequel. It's like that you get to continue exploring the world, but you have the satisfaction of the first book, like this one, where you get to an arrival point with Jane, but I think any good supporting character could be, you know, the main character in another book. Yeah, I forget which which writer talks about um, round and flat characters um, and this idea that, you know, obviously all your main characters, your primary characters should be round, very complex. Uh, but secondary characters as well, um, you know, they're just not given as much airtime or real estate on the page. But um, there are ways to make them round. And um, and you can think about their complexity, too. And even a, a, a tertiary character, let's say the waiter who's just passing through a scene, m- may have a moment, uh, a line of dialogue, something that that makes them round in the moment that they're interacting with the other characters. And then they kind of resume their their role as the waiter. Um, and I'm fascinated by that because I feel like it's just a matter of where the camera is turning, right? That. Jane gets to be the star of Rejane, but why not Juan the stock boy um, who was born and raised in Argentina? And like, what's his life all about? So um, I, I, I like thinking about that. And it's an interesting challenge to kind of take on in, in the world of a novel. So how did you pick 
because I think there are so many fascinating characters in Ray Jane. I mean, you've got other au pairs, you've got people she's running into, you've got the friends at the bar, you've got, you know, all kinds of stuff um, all over the place. And how did you pick who you wanted to follow the second time? Um, well, I, th- I think sometimes they tell you. Yeah. Um, it's so corny, right? Like, was it Dickens who said, oh, I just let my characters kind of run on the page or imagine that. Um, but, for example, Jane's um, best friend from, from church, a woman named Eunice O, is um, she graduated from MIT. She's a, she's a computer programmer, a total sci-fi geek. Um, she's definitely inspired by my time at Bronx Science and also <laughs> uh, my older siblings who are also like sci-fi all the way. Um, and at first she was just a 2D character. You know, she was Jane's sidekick. Her role in the in Rejane was to deliver the Village Voice um, ad that um, that mentioned an au pair, um, a family looking for an au pair in Brooklyn. That was her primary role in Rejane. And um, and then I was in San Francisco uh, traveling for a wedding. And as I walked around and I was talking to some people, I was just picking up on this kind of very technologically driven air and um, and this. I don't know, this kind of way of life. And I started, as I was walking around the city, I started to envision, well, what was Eunice like when she went to go work for Google at a time when everyone's like, oh, why would you go work for a dot-com? Like, oh, that's so risky. Oh, you know, why do not work for a more established company, which is what Eunice does. And then I, I just started to envision this whole life for her. So I went back to Rejane. And this is part of what took so long, too, is that you just keep going back. The manuscript is done, but you, in quotes, I guess, but you just keep going back and trying to add more layers. Um, so I went back and then refashioned the whole scene between Jane and, and Eunice. And, and I started to watch some movies that Eunice would have watched or read some books that she would have read so that it informed her dialogue. Um, and as I went back, I'm like, oh, you know, I, I'm not actually devoting that much more real estate to Eunice. But the real estate she does have is kind of more layered with her personality and, and what she's thinking. So um, so that was a fun moment for me. And then I'm kind of envisioning her her series of adventures uh, for for future work. So 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 you have moments like that, that they just kind of speak to you, I guess, or or you just start to envision them. Um, And certainly other characters have gone the other way. Characters that I thought would have a bigger role kind of got downgraded a bit in Regine. I love the idea of reading books that she would have read and watching movies that she would have watched. Like, which ones did you watch? I want to know what Eunice's reading list is. So this is a dirty confession, but I had never watched the Star Wars movies. I somehow made it to three decades of my life without, with every single Star Wars reference in pop culture going straight over my head. Um, So I I sat down and watched the originals, um, and I watched it with a self-proclaimed Star Wars expert, Um, and every time some iconic line would happen, we'd pause, my friend would go, go write that down. And I had a notebook and I started to write down all the, the little, you know, oh, I love you. I know. Or, you know, lines like that or or moments, um, that are, that are just so embedded in our pop cultural fabric. So there was that, um, definitely reading choose your own adventure books, um, the kinds that we read when we were kids. Um, I love those. those. Yeah, those like cheap mass market paperbacks. Um, 
I was starting to attempt Dune, and then I'm like, all right, I got to get on with <laughs> the other work And um, I interviewed some people who went to MIT where, where Eunice went and spent time on the campus because they have a very interesting architecture or the way that they label their buildings, uh, which is very mathematical. So so all of that kind of helped to inform the what the one or two scenes that Eunice gets, the like six lines of dialogue that she gets. So, so it was fun. Well, no wonder you wanted to go back and explore her more. I mean, there's a lot going on in there. I love, I love this idea. I mean, I have done such weird things with the book I'm working on and where I take personality tests as if I'm the characters. Oh, that's so cool. So I did. I'm going to add that to my toolbox. It's so fun. I did, um, because I had a character similarly who I thought was sort of a vehicle to get my main character from one point to another. And then I took the, um, I think it's the 12 personalities site, but I took the, like the Myers-Briggs test and just answered the questions the way I thought he would answer them. And then I started reading the description of who he was and it was so dead on, but it gave me all this added nuance. And I was like, oh my God, that is why he does that. And it was crazy. And then I was like, okay, he needs more space. That's awesome. Oh, Thank you for that tip, Caroline, because I'm I'm kind of running low on the stock of what I should do. I'm like, uh, I already poked through their refrigerators and uh, what else should I do? That's great. Okay, we'll find out who is like an EN, ENPJ exactly. or whatever. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I was talking about this in my my little writing group I'm in last night and somebody whipped out the any a book on the Enneagram was like, do the same thing. And it was so funny because... <sighs> I think knowing those things and knowing the, the sort of infrastructure, but even more fun, I think for me is like, oh my God, what books were they reading? Like, what were they doing? Like, you can easily see how this could turn into a 10-year process because if you've got more <laughs> than two characters sitting there talking to each other, you can be like, well, what about the waiter? Like, I thought he was reading this in the back room. I should probably know about that book. I mean, it's... I know. Well, maybe he was going through a divorce on the one day that he happened to serve the main characters and that informs the way that he kind of threw down the plates versus, you know, kissing up. I don't know. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe he's reading like David Snarch, passionate marriage, trying to pull it together in the back room. I don't know. (laughs) Amazing. So where are you in the process with novels two and three? I kind of love that you're, you're doing two at the, I mean, I can understand you're like, this took 10 years. I might as well kind of have two going at the same time. I know I'm, I'm, I'm a little, I I will talk with a kind of a disclaimer because you never, uh, when you're talking about work that has yet to be published, there's always this like, uh, I mean, I could talk so confidently, but it means nothing until it's actually out there. So this is a safe space, right, Caroline? Yeah, (laughs) definitely. Um, So I started my second novel um, actually seven years ago. I was so frustrated with Rejane in a moment um, that I threw it down um, and Again, cheating and infidelity seems to be the running theme of my novel writing (laughs) structure. So I cheated on Regine with the second novel. um, And I'm fascinated by um, there. There's a a small Korean community in Buenos Aires um, and they they work in the textiles um, and they uh, they kind of yeah they have their own uh, neighborhood. uh, and, And I started I later did research on that, but I just in one one sitting seven years ago wrote uh you know a 12 page story about this 
a, a little boy from that community and how he just longs to study jazz piano. And his father's like, no, Bach and Mozart and Tchaikovsky only. And, uh, and this little adventure that he had. So that, that germ sat with me. And then I thought, hey, that little boy, Juan Kim, um, maybe he could be, maybe I could stick him in Ray Jane. And, or maybe he's already there. Oh, the stock boy at Jane's uncle's grocery store. Um, that guy, you know, Jane always thinks that he's like fresh off the boat from Korea, but it turns out he's fresh off the boat from Argentina. And how funny because she's always mad when the world is looking at her face and saying like, oh, you are this. And she feels another way, but she's just as guilty of doing that as well to other people. So um, I started to develop this life of this character, Juan Kim. And as I was doing research on not only the Korean community in, in Argentina, but also the um, the political history, I stumbled upon the Dirty War um, in the late 70s, uh, the military dictatorship from the late 70s to the early 80s, and, and realized like all these horrible atrocities were happening. 30,000 people were disappeared, sent to clandestine prisons. And all the while, you know, everyday Argentines are cheering because they, world, they won the World Cup or, um, oh, you know, uh, the things are so safe, there's no street crime, etc. So I just thought it was such a lovely disconnect um, and very kind of uh, fertile for, for exploring in the world of a novel. So I was, I'm working, I've been working on that, um, a few drafts into that manuscript. And um, certainly in a moment of frustration, I put that aside for um, a little bit and have been working on uh, Eunice's uh, her novel um, and right now she's penning her own choose your own adventure oh my god the best to, I know, a literary choose your own adventure uh, we'll see we'll see if I can pull that off but um so she's it's basically her attempt to rewrite the pains of her own life and kind of restart you know hit replay and and see what what other paths she could have taken I love how, I mean, in, in a sense, I could see how it feels like infidelity, but at the same time, the fact that they tie back, it's almost like they support each other and that they're cross-pollinating or, or fertilizing each other's stories in a way. Caroline, I love your spin. This is wonderful. <laughs> well, how would you have no. had that, that complexity about Jane kind of not seeing people as they are without Juan Kim, you know? And it's like that came back and added something to her. That's true. Yeah. So I'm not cheating on the world or even the themes. Um, it, it's yeah, I'm, I'm kind of exploring other other lives within it. Thank you. I'm and so you get extra books out of it. I mean, it could be, have been just a character exploration, but you're getting a whole book out of it. That sounds amazing. <laughs> Fingers crossed. We'll see. <laughs> well, it always feels that way. I mean, I think there is this, there was a journal, um, I think the working journals, while why am I having a, this is the worst blank out moment I've ever had. Grapes of Wrath. He had his journals of Steinbeck, my God, um, <laughs> about when he was writing the Grapes of Wrath. And they're all like, oh my God, this is total shit. Like it's never going to amount to anything. Why am I bothering? And it was the Grapes of Wrath. So <laughs> I think being able to know that like until it's done, it's true. It doesn't feel, it feels a little bit like Schrodinger's book. You know, it's like, it could be, inside of this computer or notebook or whatever, it could be a book and it could also not be a book. Ultimately, who knows? 
And yeah, and I, I guess the more you talk it up, the more you feel like you're writing the press release before the book even happened. And then and then when I sit down to write, I'm like, oh, I must live up to these concepts that will never be as beautiful as, as in the short little snippy sentence I, I mentioned about it. And, ah, and then, you know, um, many cups of coffee and, and bouts of agony later. <laughs> I'm still in the same place. Yeah, so much coffee. <laughs> But I think it's, it is, it's sort of a like taking small steps and, and sort of trusting that it is ultimately going to be something. Yeah. And I think, I think as writers, we have that instinct. I, I think that we know that when a story has something deeper, when the roots run deeper and that we can have something to explore there. So, so I, I, I want to trust the process and not kind of overanalyze it in some ways too much or else you might lose that tenuous kind of delicious magic moment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I think it's it's like there's, I think if there was a formula, books wouldn't be as good, you know, to go back to what you said earlier. Like if it was like, okay, sit down at this time for this amount of time, this many days in a row and, you know, have character A, character B and character C and have them have an interaction and then you're done. I mean, that would be so boring. I, I think, yeah, I, I think you're exactly right. It was what you're saying actually echoes what um, Alice McDermott had said. I, I met her at Suwanee, um, the Suwanee Writers Conference last summer, and we were talking about structure. And I said, oh, you know, I, I do appreciate when, a, when an author kind of tells you where things are in the structure or, or lays out a structure. And she's like, yeah, but you don't you don't want it to be too neat. Um, I'm paraphrasing her grossly, but, you know, you want to still be surprised or, or still not have it follow essentially a formula. And I thought about that. I'm like, oh, that obviously this is what separates chemistry from art, um, that, that we have these um, moments that I don't want to say defy logic, but that they, they surprise in a way that we would not have expected. Definitely. I mean, I think, yeah, there's also the, the purpose of structure in some ways, I think is is twofold. There's the structure that the writer gets to hold on to while writing the thing. But there's the structure that the reader experiences. And sometimes I think it's more important for the writer to be able to hold on to something. And then you can kind of let it go. And the reader doesn't necessarily need all of it. Yeah, um, I, I think there's a lot of that imagery of kind of the scaffolding. And then you take away the scaffolding. And and hopefully the reader is none the wiser. And I, I know for some readers uh, who've read Rejane, they, they said that if they had never known about the Janer connection... Um, they would not have necessarily put that on the novel or have had those expectations. Um, I don't know. I don't know if all readers agree. What I do find heartening is when I meet readers who have never read Jane Eyre and have had their own personal and unique experience reading my novel. Um, And to me, that was what I was trying to do because if you just hew too closely to the source text, you'll only be a bad imitation. Um, and, And, but to be inspired by it and let it kind of, go in its own direction. Um, I don't know. I think that's kind of fun. <laughs> Absolutely. So I wanted to ask about now that you've mentioned Juan and, and Argentina, like, and that there was a huge section of, well, middle section of Regine and Seoul. How much travel are you getting to do for this? Or how are you researching these settings? Because I, that is one of the side benefits of writing about other locations is getting <laughs> to go there and, and work on that. So I'm curious about your process with you know, settings that are further away. Yeah, um, with with Rejane, because part two takes place in Korea, and I've never lived in Korea, it was it was a bit daunting um, to undertake. Uh, the sections that I had written um, when I had written that section before ever before going to Korea, 
um, you know, I was trying to like fake authority and I'm like, yeah, this is totally what a street looks like based on Google Maps or whatever. Um, and I was lucky enough to get a Fulbright research grant uh, for Rejane before it was even published um, so that I could spend a year researching in Korea. And my, my grant proposal was actually about, um, I guess, deconstructing the, the figure of the orphan and trying to understand how orphans are, are considered in, in the larger kind of uh, Korean psyche. So that was the part of my Fulbright uh, work was I was doing some volunteer work with different organizations. But the other part of it as writers is like there's no scripted research process. We're not like sociologists per se or anthropologists who, you know, you have to do specific kinds of field work and do certain um, construct experiments accordingly. It could be as simple as riding on the subway, (laughs) figuring out how to use like tap your card into the turnstile thing and then. Uh, you know, catching the rhythm of how soul commuters and soul function versus New York. Um, and, and so that, that was part of my research as well. Um, you know, I was also taking classes in, in soul, but the, that Fulbright grant, um, where I was kind of given that latitude to be as, um, create a rigid schedule and also a loose one, um, that worked well. With the with the second novel um, taking place in Argentina, I've I did receive a few grants um, I re- to to research in in Buenos Aires, so I got a Jerome Foundation grant, and also I was um, auditing graduate school classes through Middlebury's Spanish um, program in in Buenos Aires. So so I did some of that, and also I actually do have some family, a very distant family, like my dad's cousin's wife's older sister lives in Argentina. Amazing. So you, know, you got to like grab whatever tenuous connections you have. Um, so I, you know, I, I stayed with them. So I got to see, you know, how, how an Argentine family would live. Um, I, from there, I just kind of inserted myself into the community. I went to, I found out all the church schedules for the Korean Catholic mass and the Korean Protestant masses, and then just invited myself along. I'm like, can I please just come and be a fly on the wall? I also connected with some Korean shopkeepers and asked if I could just work a day in their stores um, to see what kinds of customers came through, what those interactions were like. And I found a lot of parallels between the Korean American community and the Korean Argentine community. Um, Language, for one, the way that the parents speak, the broken yet fluid mix of the two languages. So in one in one shop that I was in, the the mother was shouting to her son. She's like, "Ocho y media kajitibewa," which means "Ocho y media, eight thirty by eight thirty, come home." And it was like such a the fluid mix of Korean and Spanish would be exactly like how my mother would speak Korean and English all rolled into one, forming its kind of own pigeon. And um, so all of those moments I thought were so fascinating. And then just kind of more on an academic level, um, I've been reading on Argentine history, um, also watching some documentaries about the Dirty War, um, and then just trying to, to read a lot of um, Borges and Julio Cortázar and Roberto Alt. Uh, different Argentine writers to try to get that feel and the rhythm and the spirit of what uh, the Porteño or Buenos Aires kind of uh, psyche may possibly be. So did you speak Spanish before this process started? Um, You know, I had my like junior high school, New York City public school education in Spanish. um, But you did the Middlebury course. Yeah, I did the Middlebury course up in Vermont, which people are like, why are you going to Vermont to study Spanish? Oh my God, I've been dying to do that for years. (laughs) 
oh wow you should do it because there's it's it's crazy it's insane it's um on the day that you arrive i mean everywhere there are signs that say do not speak english you have to no sign english waiver. oh yeah no english and they so kick bad. you out if you speak english it's amazing yeah, yeah. So you have to pledge to, you sign the language pledge. You will not read, write, speak, or listen to any other language but the language you're studying in. So, um, you know, you had different tricks like watching Netflix shows but muting it and putting on only the Spanish subtitles. So you still get to watch How I Met Your Mother, but it's, you know, with the Spanish subtitles. Um, And it's just so awkward because you're there for seven weeks, right? I think it's seven weeks and um, you're in the dorms, you're living with your professors. So one Saturday morning, I'm doing my laundry, like folding my underwear and in walks my my language professor. And I'm like, Ugh. you know, in that moment, even English fails you, you know, let alone Spanish. So being able to kind of think quickly on your feet um, in those situations and just immersing yourself in the Spanish, um, that was hugely helpful. And I did get to study with a few Argentine professors up at Middlebury. So, you know, I learned the ticks of the Rio Platense dialect, which is different from, say, Mexican Spanish or Spanish from the Caribbean. So then I try to study um, the particulars of, of Argentine Spanish and what they would speak in, in Buenos Aires. All for a novel I'm re- writing in English, but <laughs> I'm sure it'll, it'll all trickle back. No, this, this, all of this delights me. Um, I'm just like, yes, yes, this is the whole point. <laughs> Yeah, I'm I'm writing something that takes place half in the US and half in Germany. So I'm, you know, my German is like high school German, but it's so tempting to just go deep dive on it. Even though my character is American and an outsider in the situation, it's still like, <laughs> oh, I just want to get in there. But that's great because that will give you an out in a sense because the outsider is looking in on the culture um and I found this with Rejane too that you get a little bit more wiggle room um in in that whatever interpretations of the culture there are, they're all filtered through um, a, a viewpoint that that you're familiar with too. So so you, you get some leeway, but it's so much, you should go, yeah. And a, a friend of mine, uh, the writer Michelle Hoover, for her second novel, Bottomland, she had a, a she had five different first person characters. And oh, man, one of them a was a German immigrant father who, you know, had a farm in, in the Midwest. So she had studied German so that she could write his English with German syntax, which is similar to English, but still, you know, has its own particular quirks and perhaps its own cognates. So, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait to read your manuscript. Oh, thank you. You're so sweet. Yeah, no, I'm doing the thing that you said. Oh, God. It's like I'm already talking about it and I'm like halfway through the first draft and I'm like, well, it's going to happen because I've told people it's happening. It will. Yeah. Sometimes that's that's like the motivation. Too. You're like, must finish, must finish. Yeah. It's like, am I more motivated? Am I more motivated or frozen by talking about it? And I have found <laughs> that like shame is a good motivator for me. Like I will be very embarrassed if I don't finish this book at this point. I, I work very well on shame as well. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Whatever it takes, whatever it takes. It's, it is fascinating. <laughs> I mean, going back to something you said earlier, which I think is true, is Everything we've just talked about, I mean, yes, to look at an economic standpoint and say, what is the return on investment for a book? It is definitely not financial. Um, <laughs> however, <laughs> in writing Rejane, you now, and, and working on the book about Juan, it's like you now have command of Spanish and you have all of these other things that have come from writing that book. And, and it, I think the, the thing that writers keep asking is, is that worth it to us? And I think it is. I mean, I think that's just as valuable. 
I, I think so, because I, I don't know what other profession kind of beyond the arts gives you that, that multi-latitudinal, I, I mean, you never know what you're going to need to know um, for the writing of a novel. And so I think as long as you f- you as a writer find that inherently satisfying, then all the other externals kind of don't matter. Um, if I had any skills of becoming, I don't know, uh, a cancer researcher or I don't know, a dentist or something, Godspeed, that'd be awesome. <laughs> um, maybe I'd be able to sleep better at night knowing, you know, that I'd have a steady paycheck or something like that. But uh, I think, yeah, if, if we inherently find it fascinating and, and satisfactory, then gosh, that's a good place to be. Absolutely. Well, I'm very excited also because I have yet to talk to somebody who's working on two novels simultaneously. So I hope that you'll come back, but I don't know which one it's going to be. Is it going to be Eunice? Is it going to be Juan who we get to hear about when you come back letting us know that that one of them is finished? (laughs) We'll see. Yeah, I would would be thrilled to come back. You're you're such a wonderful interviewer, and this has been such a such a meaningful conversation. Um, And and I I would love to. I would be honored to be back. (laughs) Thank you so much. I can't wait. Great. Thank you, Caroline. Thank you for listening to the Secret Library Podcast. The show is produced by me, Caroline Donahue, and Frederick Barry McWilliams Jr., my tireless audio engineer. To get show notes for this episode and all other episodes, please visit secretlibrarypodcast.com. To get updates, literary love, and notification when new episodes are posted, sign up there for Footnotes, my newsletter. And to learn about life coaching with me to work on building your writing life, visit carolinedonahue.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with a friend. Gold stars to everybody who leaves a rating and review on iTunes. We're so grateful. Until next time, happy reading.